0: You know, there are a lot of drunken porch conversations about, oh, wouldn't this be a funny idea? Wouldn't this be a, like, great movie or whatever?
1: Hey. Hey. Welcome to We Can't Print This. It's a podcast telling you the story you don't know behind the story you do. My name is Eden Don, And I'm Fiona McCann. Every week we interview a writer
2: of some kind about the stories behind their stories.
1: Yes, we do. And this week, we have John Raymond in the house. John is both an acclaimed and award-winning author of the novels Half-Life, Rain Dragon, Freebird, and most recently, Denial, and the short story collection, Livability. Also, he got an Emmy nomination for his screenwriting on the HBO miniseries Mildred Pierce. But also, also, he has collaborated on six gorgeous films with the director Kelly Reichardt. And many of these films were also based on his fiction. So basically, this guy's a local literary legend and he walks red carpets and he also couldn't be a nicer fellow. And with us today, he talks about the genesis of the story that became the script that he co wrote with Kelly Reichardt for First Cow. Yeah. I love
2: movies. And <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, hold on. Controversial statement. I love movies. <laughs> Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much. But it is fun to talk about the writing of a movie with John and think about what movies have held on to us throughout our lives because of great writing. Like when you think about a movie that you have loved where the writing has just stuck with you or been so impactful to you, do you have one that comes to mind right away?
1: Yeah. So I was thinking about this a bit, and I was thinking about the movies written by Mark O'Halloran and directed by Lenny Abramson. They were kind of an Irish duo who did the writer director thing to amazing effect with two films, Adam and Paul, which is lovely if you ever get a chance to see it, a buddy comedy about two heroin addicts, and another exquisite film called Garage. And I think that was that, that kind of chemistry between them really paid off on the big screen. Love a buddy comedy. You love a buddy comedy. I love buddies. So those two for sure. I just thought of one more old movie. Can I mention that real quick? Okay. No, it might be one of yours though. So maybe yeah. Yeah. ask me. Maybe it's the same because <laughs> <laughs> this the movie I'm thinking of is also based on a piece of writing that existed before the movie in some way. And the movie is called Clueless.
2: Oh, interesting. Well, you know that I love Clueless. Of I course. know you
1: love it. And this might be where our tastes align because... This might
2: be where our tastes align because we have nothing else in
1: common. And it was based on a Jane Austen book, right? Uh-huh. And yet it is a modern day version of it. It's its own thing. I love how they pulled it into the modern day... The fashion was glorious, as you know. I do know. And shout
2: out to Mona May, the costume designer for that film, who I've had the pleasure of interviewing about the costumes in that film.
1: It was, I think, the first time I really understood that fashion was a thing, to be honest, because I was like, oh, I'm really noticing those outfits. And I was not an outfit noticer iconic before that iconic and just beautifully scripted really well done there are so lines of dialogue in that that i remember to this day
2: well it's funny to me because i do think if a movie stays highly quotable for decades i have to give some props to the writing of it whether you love it or some people really only seem to admire very serious movies and all of this stuff but if it's something is highly quotable and becomes part of the zeitgeist you have to credit the writing a little bit yeah and the other so for me one when i think you about spent too long
1: waiting for me to ask you and there you have i know to- i'm just going to have
2: to this <laughs> is what i've learned when you're with fiona sometimes you just barrel ahead is i have to say clue i thought you were going to say clue and you said clueless but clue, <gasps> clue. 1985's clue great film. the who done it of all time I mean, just so smart, so witty. I love ensemble casts with a lot of dialogue. And that movie, which I just screened recently for my film series that I host at the the Hollywood Theater, had a sold-out room of like 500 people all yelling the dialogue back at it because it's just so witty and memorable. And then, of course, you bring in people like Tim Curry. I mean, just a... How does such an angel even exist? That man. Performer performer of all performers. And Leslie Ann Warren and, of course, Madeline Kahn and Michael McKee. Just everyone
1: in that is banger after banger. That one. It's true. That brings me to one that I would think of in a more modern context, which is Knives Out, speaking of ensemble casts. That's a really well-written movie. And in part because of how cleverly the sort of who done it? Or the mystery part is unraveled. I mean, that's it. Is I
2: love a mystery writing. As people will get to know who listen to this podcast over time, I am a murder she wrote stan, and love I her. stand by. Jessica Fletcher was a feminist icon. Okay, she didn't need no man. She solved all those murders herself. Best selling author, did what she wanted. Had like four hundred nephews around the country that she just kept visiting all the time. Oh, that's true. She so did. many nephews. Anyways but the knives out the who done it thing and glass onion it is interesting right because how you write that how you write a good who done it is always so clever because it's a it's a trope it's a, this thing we've done for years and years and years and yet if you can find a new way at the end when you're always entertained it's just so lovely
1: right and it's so difficult because audiences have been so primed to look for the reveal before it comes they're like what Where's the twist? I bet I know what the twist is. Everyone thinks
2: they know the twist. And murder mysteries are so hot right now.
1: They're so hot. <laughs> They're just
2: so hot. Only Murders in the Building. Yeah. Gem of a show. Didn't know I was in love with Selena Gomez until I watched that show. Already knew I was in love with Marty Shore and Steve Martin, obviously. But now there's just, there's three of them I'm in love with. And we have Knives Out, and we have Poker Face. Like, we have all these things, again, where it's just great. And I love it. I love that type of writing. Um, It's very fun to talk to John about the process of movies. And especially, I think it's okay for us to say, you know, First Cow and Kelly Reichart movies are known for being serious and so beautiful, right? They really are moving pictures. Like, each one, each scene kind of looks like its own oil painting. And for him to talk about how silly of a origin story is, is. Yeah it was surprising. is very unexpected and it's fun to think about that uh, and just something to enjoy when you watch the film. Okay
1: so this week we have John Raymond. Boop boop. Fun fact between the three of us. We have half a dozen cats. Half a dozen, right here.
0: Amazing. I know
1: Eden counted that. I was like, I think this is an important fact to introduce. I felt like it was really, really happy to have you here, John. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: I am thrilled to be here.
1: Um, So, John, we are talking. You know, as you know, our podcast talks a lot about sort of the stories behind the stories. And when we were in conversation, one of the interesting things that came up was how. One of your stories began, I mean, it was published in 2005, probably began a lot, was it 2005, Half-Life? Uh,
0: 2004.
1: 2000, you said that, Wikipedia lied. I said it,
0: and I was Wikipedia correct. can be wrong. Yeah. It um, can be wrong.
2: Yeah. Not well, a verifiable source <laughs> for journalists, is what I Not doing. like
1: I would ever use that, though, but, <laughs> can we just say all of the internet was wrong? Um, yeah, so you published this novel, Half-Life, it came out in 2004, and I'm sure the sort of the uh, story behind that went back much further. And then it also, Half-Life got a new life, but much more recently, in a movie.
0: Indeed, yeah. Um, I mean, it was a sort of a 20-year lapse almost. Uh, well, 15, say a 15-year lapse. Yeah, and many things happened, and um, we can discuss the Some story behind both of those <laughs> stories, the novel and the film, which kind of are... I think together create a sort of to my mind inspiring and wonderful story mm-hmm. of creative collaboration and and rebirth and things like that.
1: Yeah. And how these characters that began in a place that you're probably gonna tell us about, um, then have this sort of twenty year lapse and then something new comes out of it. It's yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a of- yeah, it's a, a nice story about resilience and Survival, yeah.
1: and <laughs> characters. Just bide if you just your keep time. doing stuff yeah.
0: long enough, eventually something happens. That's what you know? Well, will
2: tell us at the beginning for Cookie. Talk to us yeah. about Cookie's beginning. Okay, I do love the name Cookie because it's Cookie so fun is a to great say. name.
0: I know so a great character. Um, yeah, so the the um, the Half Life has many different sources. Like every novel is kind of a weird agglomeration of things. It is a magpie's art, I think, to write fiction. And you end up with a lot of, yeah, just a lot of pieces that you kind of have to find a shape for. And you often have the pieces before you know what the what the deal is going to be. And so I think particularly for a first novel, like you've been kind of collecting little string for a long time, and you're finding, you know, a way to, to make it something. Isn't not uh, there
1: isn't there kind of a danger that you then... Want to throw all of those pieces into your first novel, which sure, can sometimes yeah. be a bit much. Where yeah. you're like, oh, finally, I'm writing a book. Right, these ten thousand ideas, I'm going to put them all in there. All of these like things that I've been thieving for years, they yeah, all go and, in. It's a hoarder, yeah. hoarder territory,
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think of it as like a kind of like a weird form of folk art. You're just like creating some crazy quilt of of you know scraps and and pieces of metal and string and stuff. Um but um so the Half-Life all right I'll start with the cookie character it's true so just so so listeners know the Half-Life is a story that takes place part of it in the 1820s and part of it in the 1980s two different stories of friendships in different eras that uh, happen on the same geographical ground so you, it's kind of going back and forth between these two these two parallel parallel tales and the Cookie character is one of the old-timey characters and he is sort of holding up that end of the of the book. And the the beginning of Cookie is actually funny. It was one of those things as a young person, not a teenager but probably in my early 20s, you know, there are a lot of like drunken porch conversations about, oh, wouldn't this be a funny idea? Wouldn't this be a yes. like great movie yes. or whatever. Like you guys have had them like there, you know, you've got your bong and your beer and everyone's just like
1: Dude, I've, I've got, got the life. best idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the thing is, that's funny that is a, a lot of those
0: ideas are really good. I like, know. They're actually a lot of the best ideas I've ever heard, you know?
1: We're
2: encouraging the bong and beer people right now. <laughs> Write it down, baby. I'm, it's totally, it's true. <laughs> See, I mean, you just got to actually do
0: it, you know? I mean, that's the problem is then you wake up the next day and everyone is like, all right, you know, let's just get wasted again. Uh, We were talking one night, and we were reminiscing about an old Henry Weinhardt's commercial, which is a beer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And for those of us who grew up in the Northwest, the Henry Weinhardt's commercials were actually pretty entertaining. Mm -hmm. And there was one commercial that always stuck with us that featured a kind of wagon train cook. Maybe you remember this one. Oh, my God. Um, And you can find it on YouTube right now. Uh, if you go look for it and it's We're like you're going
1: to have to link to this it's, on the website. Yeah,
0: it's like a guy with a triangle yeah, and like yeah. he yeah. like does it and then there's all these kind of cowboys sitting around drinking their Henny Weinhardt's, I guess. And then the cookie guy comes out with who's one of those like bearded old guys.
1: Just looks like, like a current floppy hat, floppy
0: hat. Yeah, exactly. He became an archetype. And the joke of it is he starts going through this kind of fancy California cuisine menu. Like, t- on tonight's menu, we're going to have mushrooms uh, braised in truffle oil or whatever. And all the cowboys are sitting around looking at them. And so the, that's the joke, is that, like, the frontier days were equally as yuppified as, as now. And even at the time, I mean, this when I was when we were seeing this, this commercial, like, we were 10 years old or 12 years old or something. But even then, I can remember... 'Cause that cookie character has a little earring in his ear also. And it's like part of it is like this fancy chef, and you're like, this commercial is kinda homophobic. Like the joke is that it's this gay chef on the frontier that's cooking these wonderful gourmand meals, you know, and that's that's the joke. And Um, so we were sitting on the porch then, you know, 10 years later being like, wouldn't it be funny to do a movie about cookie? Like cookie (laughs) should be the character of a movie. Like, why don't they, why don't you ever see a Western about cookie? You know, like, and it was just, it's one of those classic things of like, you take the marginal character and put them in the middle, you know? So like there's been a million Westerns and many of them have featured that Chuck Wagon cook. But for but a total of like the five minutes, they're never the protagonist, yeah. you know? So like, what would happen if that person became the protagonist? And so it was really my friends, Jason and Brian, as I recall, who were most Shout excited about that Brian. idea. Yeah, exactly. It stuck with me. I'm like, that would be a good idea. Someone should do a story about the wagon train cook.
1: Wait, how old are you? At this, this
0: point, I'm probably 22 or something, you know, I like... It.
1: So Jason and Brian, So Jason
0: and Brian, kudos to those guys, uh, brilliant people. And so, yeah, that was just one of those things that I just tucked in my pocket. I'm like, yeah, that would be a good thing to do someday. And then by the time I was writing the novel, then another seven or eight years had gone by and uh, there were other other pieces that I had gathered along the way. And uh, I had reached a point in life where I was like, I would like to write a novel and here are the cards I can deal to myself. And yeah, so one of them was was the cookie idea.
1: And then there were Trixie and Tina, right? So they were the ones that inhabited the present day, as it were.
0: Right. So in the period between getting the idea of cookie and actually writing the novel of the Half-Life, I had been dabbling in, I guess you could call it filmmaking here in Portland. Like I made a feature length film with some friends, not a film actually, of feature-length uh, cable access video um, <laughs> um, in the 90s. That was how I spent my 90s in the, yeah. in Portland, was making this movie. But the, the movie that we made was not very good. It was probably unwatchable to anyone who was not part of that process. But at the time, I really thought it was an amazing Project, and I thought it was something that the world would love. And it was very disappointing to realize that I had made something
2: Aww. not good, you
0: know. But anyway, that experience was formative for me making a terrible movie and it, it informed the Tina and Trixie friendship and collaboration. And um, look,
2: we've all been part of terrible creative projects. That's part yeah. of the game. You have to do some totally, terrible totally. creative projects. If you're not like cringing when you look back at some of your first work, then you haven't grown at all, right? If you look back at totally. your first pieces and you're like A plus, no notes, then I worry right. about you. <laughs> I
0: mean, there are there are those people who just know how to do well, it. Well, yeah, know? they knock it out um, of the park first. Yeah, go. and they I, deserve a little slap. They. Yeah, either yeah, a tip of the hat or an elbow. Yeah, I was not one of those people, so definitely lear- learning occurred.
1: Well, can we talk a little bit about Henry? Because he is a character who, well, the later iteration was very different, right?
0: Yeah. So I wrote The, the Half-Life, and that, um, unlike the film that I had made, The Half-Life you know, was, was good enough that, like, it got published, and at least some people liked it. And happily, one of the most amazing things that ever happened in my life was that my friend Kelly Reichert read it, who I had met through our mutual friend Todd Haynes, and Kelly liked it. And she was, at that point, a filmmaker who had made one really beautiful, amazing feature in the 90s, and then had had kind of a Well, had had a hard time making a second feature and she was looking to she had come into a small, a very small amount of money and she was going to use it to make a new film. And because she had enjoyed the half life, I mean, she had had a sort of fantasy at that moment. This is about in 2004 when it came out of adapting the half life, but it was just too vast. I mean, she didn't have the resources to possibly do that. So she asked me, like, do you have anything else that might be adaptable? And I had one story I had written at that point <coughs> called Old Joy that was very simple, just about two guys taking a walk in the woods, and like one of them gives the other a sort of sinister massage at some point. And I wish
2: people could have seen the hand <laughs> you just did <laughs> yeah. while you were saying that. Kind of was. Sinister
0: massage is actually close to writing, actually. You know? You just wiggle Ooh, your fingers. Sinister, you know? You're yeah, right. right yeah. We can dive into that with our therapist <laughs> yeah, later. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but uh, she, unlike I think any other filmmaker in the world, saw in that story a possible film, and so she was like, "Yeah, I'm going to do this." And so she took that story and made a really beautiful movie out of it. And in that that process, movie
1: was Old Joy as well, yeah, that just movie to was let people the know in, also, in, in case, yeah, case they want to see Sinister thing. Massages yeah. Yeah. on yeah. the big screen, Right. <laughs> um,
0: uh, starring Will Oldham and Daniel London and. Uh, with a soundtrack by Yola Tango and so we I think discovered in that process like we didn't know each other that well at that point but we discovered going through that process that we liked each other and that we had similar tastes and and you vibed we vibed exactly yeah Mm -hmm. that's how we make sure the kids know exactly exactly so (laughs) to
1: be clear you were involved in in adapting old joy to I was
0: involved to some degree yeah like my recollection is Kelly really did the lion's share of that stuff and you know it just became a conversation and so that sort of then has now become six films and it's like a you know a very huge part of my life and Kelly yeah. is like a family member and and so it's just like in the in the kind of weird cycle of all this stuff that it could go from failed filmmaking project and then composting that into like a story about a collaboration between people in the novel and then that sort of becomes an actual collaboration with someone is just sort of like one of those like lovely long-term arcs that you can't really predict and that occasionally will happen you know that sort of brings us to the making of the first cow because like after doing five or four movies together the idea resurfaced like let's try to adapt the half-life and so But anyway, it was made. And so we had to sort of decide early on, like, again, still there was not the resources to do, like, trips to China and, like, multiple different time frames. So we're like, we have to go with one time frame or the other.
1: It's Um, so interesting to me that that was, it just never occurred to me that some of those changes were made because of resources. Oh,
0: totally. yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of at least our films are really designed to be doable, and it's a great limitation to have. I think it makes actually much more interesting stuff. I mean, Marvel Creativity. Marvel movies have like Pentagon sized budgets, and they're not really that interesting. So it's, yeah,
2: I think I, I, I knew it just because I've styled on many um, music video <laughs> and um, whichever have a budget. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's always just like a bunch of cool people are like, we need to make a music video for this totally. band. And yeah. then you're like, we have four nickels. What do we do with this? Yeah. Who do we know? How do we make it happen? And you make cool decisions around it. And I love that. It's better. Like, yeah, the parameters are a cool thing too, because then you guys have to, you have something to work within and you're able to kind of brainstorm and be your best selves. I'm really curious how that process goes from taking something that you wrote by yourself and then sitting down with a partner to write a new thing out of that.
0: Yeah. I think it's nice to actually have the thing that you wrote yourself because that just exists and nothing is going to alter it. It's like it's that's its, it's its own thing. And then I think one can become really really unpossessive about it later on. It's like all right, now it's going to be a new thing and like let's break it apart as much as necessary. Like oh, I'm not I don't I don't care anymore because it's I have the other thing. Yeah. I
1: don't know if every writer takes that attitude though in fairness. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe they don't. But I mean, that's the fun about filmmaking is it's like, it is a truly collaborative form. And it's like, if you're not willing to dissolve into it, you're not gonna enjoy it.
2: Um, I read in this interview once that I really wanted to ask you about, where you just said that you talk about you and Kelly writing together as sort of um, being involved in a high level of gossip. And as as, uh, Fiona and I consider ourselves (laughs) connoisseurs of gossip. Yeah, yeah. Somaliers of gossip.
0: (laughs) I consider myself that as well.
2: Talk about that. What does that mean? Like you're just talking about everything that you think would be going on with the characters. You're just gossiping about them. No, it doesn't have to do do with the
0: characters even. It's like it's just just processing life as you're going through it, you know, and talking about the people that you know. And it's like a lot of it. I mean, to make good art in a collaboration – you have to hang out. I mean, Kelly is like one of the, the great students of human behavior that I have encountered. And it's just fun to talk about our friends and our families. And it's not in a malicious way at all. It's just like trying to figure people out. So that's what I mean by that. And it, it's like stuff that often has nothing to do with the project at hand at all. But it does come in, you know, where if you're talking about your friend David or whatever, and then... You have a character where you're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like it's like this person and that person. And so much of writing fiction anyway is just compositing different people, you know, and finding the kinds of hinges between them. you are like, oh, yeah, this person is like that person. And I can make a person that sort of in my mind refers to both of them, but is neither of them. But I'm able to understand how they behave because I'm kind of testing it against an actual real human human, you know, it's your,
2: your own little litmus test is like, do I know anybody who would do that? Exactly. If that person's trying to show their wife, they love them by making coffee every morning. Do I know somebody who does that? Or does that feel like a, like a made up thing?
0: And so much art fails that. Like there's so many things where I watch them. Like who the fuck acts like that? Nobody does that. Nobody does that, you know? And it's like, it's weird how few people seem to like be willing to do the test. Yeah.
2: Which is why, Gossip is good.
0: Gossip is, I mean, I think it's, I don't know, it was either, maybe it was like Truman Capote or one of those people that said literature just is a high form of gossip. I mean, that is what it is.
1: Well, he would put the high part in there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say from now on, I'm not a gossip. I'm a student of human behavior. I'm just going to (laughs) magpie that. I am a student of human behavior. PhD. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're in a
2: graduate course right now.
1: That's what this podcast is. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's fascinating to me. I I also just wanted to ask you a little bit about the difference in craft when it comes to writing a novel versus a a movie making, because it seems so vastly different and almost incomprehensibly different to me. You have to consider so many different things. I know at its fundamental, it's the same sort of study of human behavior, which I'm not going to say over and over again, but, (laughs) uh, but, but the craft is different and the form is different, right?
0: They are different but highly related. With a film, as the writer, you're having to kind of just do a really skeletal version of something that you would do in a different form. You're having to come up with characters and you're trying to paint them in as specific a way as possible. You're often dealing with locations. I mean, particularly okay. for the ones that uh, Kelly and I work on, they've all been written with particular locations in mind like i mean they are places that i've been so there's sort of an advanced scouting going on in a certain sense too
2: and they're all oregon
0: they've all been oregon yeah Yeah,
2: because we're kind of the best
0: because we're the best and also (laughs) that's what happens to be outside the window so yeah that's the thing yeah Yeah. the things we know Um, exactly and it's uh so um so all those things are happening but they're happening in a really skeletal way knowing that you have to leave a lot of space for everyone else to play around with it and bring their own thing as well. So you're just kind of doing it in a light sketch. But then, like in writing fiction, for myself anyway, it's it's like writing a paragraph I find harder often than writing a whole script. It's like you're the head of every department and you're doing mm-hmm. everything on the film. And so it's just like, yeah, just I mean, exponentially more work to write even a short story i think than most most scripts um, I mean, it depends on how, who I'm talking to, I guess, like how dismissive I am of screenwriting, you know, because <laughs> like, um, there are those people like, oh, that was, they had some good dialogue that you wrote and it's like, no, that was actually more than the dialogue I did, you know, it was yeah. like, there's a whole thing, you know. I was but thinking then, about that yeah. watching
2: First Cow where there's moments, I mean, there's minutes that go by without somebody speaking. Right. Where we're watching these very, you know, important things yeah. to the, to the plot. Yeah, things and- happen. And also... It brought me a lot of anxiety. It brought me a lot of anxiety. And I was like, no one is saying anything. And my level of anxiety of watching, like, two gentlemen just slowly yeah. walking through the green arena. This is
1: about your discomfort with silence,
0: Eden. Yeah. We need to talk well, about that. Or, or with <laughs> nature. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I
1: love nature, but silence is
2: hard, which is why I probably just, like, right. yeah. chat to myself right. in the woods. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. somebody say something. Yeah. Oh but God. I was yeah. curious what that looked like on the script well, in those minutes I of mean, silence.
0: I think, right. I mean, I think... Yeah, I mean, Kelly has a really amazing um, patient sort of metronome inside of her that allows these kind of silent passages to occur. And, and I understand that, and I am drawn to that kind of filmmaking as well. So there are scenes that are definitely on the page designed to kind of breathe, breathe and spread out. The poetry that happens in the in the film is the filmmaking. Like it's not like that's discernible on the page often.
1: Interesting. Can we talk about the cow for a hot second? Because yeah. the cow was sort of a protagonist in the film, but not in yeah, the book.
0: Yeah. So the the book has no cow, it's true. The book is is much more complicated than the film. But having written the book and kind of understanding the themes and the emotions and everything that were going on the idea of friendship the idea of of global trade i was you know then and still interested in capitalism and and uh history and and also just the sense of that historical moment like it's not a nation at this point it's like it's it's indigenous people and then various kinds of corporate enterprises going on. I mean, it's people from the Hudson's Bay Company and people from Spain and Russia and Ireland and wherever, like all merging for this extraction economy of furs you know um um, i
2: have to say the fashion editor and me was very pleased that you got (laughs) in the mentions about the beaver pelt hats and oh good yeah i mean it's such a weird thing for people who don't know about oregon (laughs) like being we were responsible for so much of the world's fashion with those top hats and we just don't get the credit and we decimated our beaver population
0: over and also exactly and i think people don't understand that the beaver trade It was the first global sort of trade economy. I mean, as far as like actually circumnavigating the entire planet, like you think in the 1990s, globalism began, but it began, you know, 150 years before that, you know, and so this is like, yeah, the beginning of so many things. And, And the Columbia River was the most diversely populated place on the continent at that time because of the beaver trade. There's so many different people kicking around at that moment. And it was like, just not, it was like a strangely cosmopolitan place. Granted it was all sort of very rustic and thinly populated too, but it was like, it was just an interesting moment, you know? So all of those things were kind of floating around in my mind. And it was like really early in the process, we had had a couple conversations and I honestly I don't know where the idea came from. I was walking down the street and I was like, "Okay, what if instead of them taking something to China, what if something comes to them?" And I was like, "What if it's a cow?" And I was like, "There has to be a first cow that landed here." At Did you time. pass
2: one of those cow statues?
0: <laughs> yeah, <around laughs> <down>. oh, yes. <laughs> it might have had something to do with thinking about Soviet Island because Soviet Island, you know, is a big dairy kind of uh-huh. place and it might have and and the story kind of took place there in some way but i honestly it's one of those things where i just don't know how it where it kind of came from but a cow fell
1: out of the sky a cow
0: came down on a sunbeam yeah and it was like (laughs) a divine cow a divine cow inspiration and it was one of those things where as soon as the idea came i'm like oh yeah i see how that could work like that you know then you've got cookie and he's gonna make something and he can use the milk and like you know and, and then it was like oh you know, well, what would he make? And I'm like, Oh, Emily, my wife, she makes clafu tea. Maybe I'll make a clafoutis, tea, you know? And then and then oh yeah, and then there's a sort of like primitive kind of marketplace that could occur and it could almost be like a voodoo donuts kind of thing, you know? It's it proto- a proto donut, you know. They're all in line. So important. Yeah. And then, you know, and just suddenly it became like and oh yeah, and the chief factor could do this and it like it really just fell into place. And I wrote the first draft then in like a week and like that basically, you know, it changed in going forward as we talked about it and stuff, but the basic structure and the the basic sort of thing of it was, was there and it was just like, yeah, one of those things where twenty years of sort of ruminating on cogitating. the stuff, cogitating, yeah. yeah um, kind of just like allowed it to be really easy. I mean, it'll never be that easy again. That movie, I will say, was a, this is a rare, a rare sentence to speak, but that movie was actually a joyful filmmaking experience and, and, that is rarely how it goes wow yeah
2: that's why then it had to come out in the pandemic you exactly. don't get you, you don't to be get punished it somewhere <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Listen, you <laughs> yeah. don't get to walk a red carpet because <laughs> yeah. you had a nice time yeah. making it yeah. one or the
1: other i love the way as well when you think about oh you know i wrote it in a week but those 20 essential years were there it's very totally, hard yeah. to explain that to somebody it yeah. entailed 20 years of walking around the city before this Cow fell down yeah. on a sunbeam. I yeah. love that Fiona is
2: yeah. on a hashtag Justice for Cow movement. Like, <laughs> give the cow credit. But like, that was like, a gorgeous yeah. cow. That really and was. No,
0: the cast relationship a beautiful with cow. The cow yeah, yeah, Oh, it yeah. was.
1: It was such a glorious relationship. I loved. I loved the cow.
0: The cow's great.
1: Yeah. And when the cow first Evie. makes an appearance, Evie.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes.
2: Oh.
1: She was a... beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had
2: cows. They're a delight. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And then first cow had its own story. So they've all like you know, come from different places and different different kind of things. And then showing up the new one is very much like a Portland art world movie. All of them are sort of weird miracles that they've happened because they're not movies that God wants to have in the, you know, they're not like movies <laughs> Ordained. That, that, that <laughs> the industry is not asking for these things. They've been really struggles for everyone to make and the most recent one yeah was shot during the pandemic and that was really hard yeah. um, for everyone not for me because i'm not like dealing with it at that point but for them doing it in masks during like a heat dome is oh. like really really unpleasant oh. filmmaking circumstances was a film
1: during the heat dome yeah oh, yeah that sounds um, so awful. that was tough
0: for people yeah um but they made a beautiful film about two uh, sculptors here in Portland and the sort of just psychodrama of creating art and putting it into the world was sort of my feeling. What So you based yeah. it
2: on Fiona and I? Yeah, yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> I mean actually I honestly think
0: that like almost everyone in Portland will feel like oh that was has a ripping me off yeah, right now. That's like, about me, it. man. Yeah.
2: I mean, we interviewed <laughs> Melissa Mares about her. She wrote the oral history of Dazed and Confused and mm. interviewed, you know, all the everybody in the book and then all the people that Richard Linklater went to school with. And the, the big takeaway is that every single person thinks it's about them. Totally. Some yeah. even sued him because they thought it was about them. Yeah. Like, and it was probably was on
0: some degree, but like it is, it's funny. Yeah.
2: I did love the sweetness between Cookie and King Lou. Like there mm-hmm. was just this. It was just a very nice, I sort of was like, oh, um, men, just see how nice it is to have a friend. <laughs> I mean, we like, hear all the time how men don't have friends and don't make friends. Yeah, right, and I was yeah. like, do you see how it's just nice to have a buddy? Yeah, Look right. at these two. You yeah. can have a buddy. You can get into some light hijinks together. Milking a cow, no one really gets harmed. Totally. Just go make a friend.
0: Exactly. I mean, no one yeah. really
1: gets harmed.
2: Well,
0: <laughs> on screen. I mean,
1: yeah, right.
2: the cow didn't get harmed. <laughs> they didn't get harmed. Okay. No. Right. Well, as we know from everything, if you commit a
1: light hijinks, then you only get to do it one time. But it's, st- <laughs> you can, I mean, you're right. F- friends are important. Look at Brian and Jason just to bring it back to them. See? I mean, exactly, it all started yeah. with a, a male friendship, essentially. Male friendship, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, yeah. At the time of the, um, half-life uh writing i i kind of had in mind that like friendship was not like a literature didn't deal with it that much you know but i have come to realize it does like there's a huge long history of stories about friends you know from uh huckleberry finn to
2: to the uh, cast of friends
0: to the cast of friends yeah i mean (laughs) to to like a million bromances that have now like blossomed in the last 15 years or whatever but um but yeah it's a good it's a good relationship yeah.
1: Nobody has ever, I don't think, drawn that through Huckleberry Finn, Huckleberry Finn, Joey and Chandler. Joey and Chandler. Well, you other. know <laughs> what? I'm a trailblazer. I mean, there's also a, you know, there's definitely a vibe that Cookie and King Lou could be more than friends too, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. It, actually, another another piece of the whole magpie art of this was in writing the Half-Life. Part of like writing or making art is just paying attention to what moves you and like what you find actually stirring in any kind of way. And so there was an artwork at that time that I really loved by this artist, David Wanarovic, who was a great like East Village, did a lot of different things, and sadly died of AIDS early. But he had a beautiful artwork that was a photograph of two skeletons holding hands that he saw in Mexico somewhere with a poem on top of it that he had written. And I just really love that idea of like two skeletons holding hands. And so that is sort of an image that presides over the book and also the film and so they that was for me kind of like a like that sort of had to be in the film like it sort of was a something that just i couldn't really imagine adapting it without
1: yeah without that being the sort of because it's the parenthesis essentially of yeah uh, first cow
0: yeah
1: oh i love that (laughs) okay okay
0: thank you guys so much Thank so you
1: so John, much. It was <laughs> so fun. See, so it's great. fun. And it's now fun. you're sweltering, I bash. Because well, our room gets...
0: my, my core is warm. It's great. We yeah.
2: That's what we do here. Um, <laughs> well, as we just said, but we want to do it one more time because we're polite around here.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank
2: you, John, for joining us. Go out, buy all of his books, watch all of his movies. John is smarter than us and not on social media, which is a true punk rock move. That's it from We Can't Print This for today. Uh, see more info about our episodes. We will try to link to that Henry Weinhardt. Oh, yeah, do. Beautiful. You can find it. You can yes. Find it. Um, at WeCan'tPrintThis.com and follow us on all of our socials at We Can't Print
1: This, too. And we aren't backed by anyone. We're just two independent journalists giving you an insider look at writing because we love it. So please support our work and the podcast by becoming a monthly supporter on Patreon. Thank you very much to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, and to Dave. Depper, for our bippity-boppity intro music. Um, This podcast was recorded at the Righteous Block in Portland. If you are a writer
2: with a great behind-the-story story, story, write to us at wecan'tprintthis at gmail.com. John, come back and see us again soon. Well, you have to, because your wife's here. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, John.
0: Bye.